What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing week and getting ready for the holiday. Speaking of the holiday, I have a few different housekeeping things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, the newsletter. I will not be sending out any newsletters next week, so no newsletter on Monday, Wednesday, or Friday like normal. Instead, I'll be taking the week off, enjoying my time with some family and friends. I hope you are as well, and I'll be back in your inbox the first week of January. Number two, the podcast. Although there is no newsletter next week, I will still be getting out two podcasts. Those podcasts will cover different topics in sports business, but I will also be doing some Q&A sessions at the end of each of them. So if you have anything that you would like me to answer or talk about across the sports business landscape, please make sure to email me your questions. You can respond to a recent edition of the newsletter or send me an email personally. You can also respond to me on Twitter or send me a DM on Twitter. I'll answer as many as I can next week, and we'll see what you guys can come up with. All right, let's get into today's episode, though. I want to talk about three things specifically. Number one, and most importantly, what we're going to be talking about is NBA Christmas Day. Now, Christmas Day in the NBA is obviously massive. Everyone knows about it. But more importantly, what I want to talk about is how the NFL is trying to steal Christmas Day away from the NBA. Secondly, we're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers taking up a roster spot on the New York Jets. And number three, we're going to talk about some of the NIL valuations that you have been seeing across college sports and a little bit of nuance behind them, whether they're accurate or not. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. All right, so let's start with the NBA on Christmas Day. You guys all know about the NBA on Christmas Day, and this year's schedule is absolutely loaded. It includes five games. These games are being played in cities like New York City, Los Angeles, Phoenix, Miami, and Denver. And they include superstar players across the NBA, including Giannis, Stephen Curry, Jokic, Jason Tatum, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler, Luka, Kevin Durant, and Devin Booker. I mean, this is the stars of the stars. This schedule is intentionally packed with the NBA's best players and biggest markets because these teams will be broadcast to millions of people in over 200 countries and 50 different languages. This provides the league with a bigger platform than any other day outside of the NBA Finals. Now, these games will also generate tens of millions of dollars in ticket sales and media rights fees, and they are a prime advertising target for the world's biggest brands. But that increased attention has also brought along some competition, as the NFL is looking to expand its holiday domination by stealing Christmas Day from the NBA. Let's start with a little bit of history, though. NBA games on Christmas Day started all the way back in 1947. The NBA was in its second season when the New York Knicks hosted the Providence Steamrollers at Madison Square Garden. And the league has spent the last 76 years expanding on this tradition. Now, the big inflection point came in 1967 when ABC decided to televise the first ever live Christmas Day game. This was a matchup between the Los Angeles Lakers and you guessed it, the San Diego Rockets. But more importantly, the NBA was able to stake its claim to Christmas Day because every other major sports league traditionally takes a break during the holiday. For example, since 1947, the NBA has typically been the only major sports league to play on Christmas Day. The only exception to this is when NFL games fall on Christmas Day weekends. Now, this reduction in supply, think about it in the concept of fewer sports to compete with. And when you combine that with people at home during a holiday, I mean, it's just like Thanksgiving Day, everyone's at home, that has turned Christmas Day games into one of the NBA's best assets. If you look across the last five years from 2018 to 2022, if we added up all the games and divided it by the average viewership, 
The NBA is averaging somewhere between 4 million average viewers per game on Christmas Day on the low end to 6 million viewers per game on Christmas Day on the high end. So again, 4 million to 6 million. Now, these viewership numbers are significantly smaller than what the NFL sees on Thanksgiving Day. To give you a little bit of context, this last Thanksgiving, 2023, the NFL averaged 34.1 million viewers across three games. So again, we're talking about 5 million or 6 million viewers for the NBA versus 34 million viewers for the NFL. But the NBA's numbers are still impressive and they're important because they're about 200% larger than the NBA's most viewed regular season matchups. So again, if you take the most viewed regular season games during the NBA season, those are about 200% smaller than what they'll see on Christmas Day. So Christmas Day is obviously a great asset for the league and their television partners. But that doesn't mean everyone loves Christmas Day games, of course. The NBA fined Stan Van Gundy in 2009 for saying he feels sorry for people who have nothing to do on Christmas other than watch an NBA game. And then Phil Jackson followed it up the following year by saying, it's like Christian holidays don't mean anything to them anymore. There's a bunch of other players like Chris Boss and other people like that who have said that they don't prefer Christmas Day games either. I mean, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Not only do you have to lock in when you're the home team, right? They mentally say, hey, I prepare for a game. I get to the arena several hours beforehand. You probably really don't get to enjoy the holiday like you would like with your family and your kids. But that gets compounded and it gets worse if you have to go on the road, right? If you're a team like Boston, who's traveling to the Lakers this year, cross country, you're probably celebrating your Christmas multiple days earlier than you typically would. So obviously that impacts your family life, your sleep, everything else around the holidays too. So when every other league is taking a break, the NBA is on because it's become such a big asset for the league and their TV partners. But regardless, Christmas Day games aren't going anywhere. People can complain all they want. These games are not going anywhere. They are a staple on the NBA's multi-billion dollar media rights package, and they command more viewership than any of the NBA's 1,200 annual regular season games, obviously everything outside the NBA Finals. But all of those reasons I just mentioned are exactly why the NFL is eventually going to steal Christmas Day. The NFL has historically avoided Christmas Day games that don't fall on their normal broadcast schedule. The reason for that is quite simple. They don't want to impede on it. They don't want to change the schedule. They don't want to adapt fans to something new. But the NFL held three games last year because Christmas Day was on a Sunday. And those games averaged 23 million viewers across three games. That crushed the NBA last year. The NBA last year across their games averaged 4.27 million viewers compared to 23 million for the NFL. Obviously, that speaks to the power of the NFL and the power of the Shield. But 2023 should even be bigger than last year. That's because the NFL will have seven nationally televised games this weekend. We're talking about Thursday through Monday, including another triple header on Christmas Day itself. This is an NFL record for the most nationally broadcasted games in a single weekend. And if you were to add up all of the NFL's games over this coming weekend versus all of the NBA's games on Christmas Day, the NFL is probably going to get somewhere between 75 to 100 million more viewers cumulatively. Now, the real question is what the NFL plans to do long term. I mean, you could make the argument that the NFL already owns Christmas Day, given what they did last year and what they're going to do this year. But the league's top executives have stated multiple times that they won't host Christmas Day games when the holiday falls outside of their normal broadcast windows. Now, to be fair, the NFL has taken over virtually every day of the week. So the only days that fall outside of their normal broadcast windows are Tuesday and Wednesday. Those are probably literally the only days where the NFL doesn't traditionally hold games. But what I would say is I wouldn't take their word for that. 
if the viewership remains where it is, we've seen the NFL, they've done a better job than anyone else in sports by monopolizing the calendar, right? We have Thursday night football. We've had Friday games. We had a Black Friday game, for example. We have Thanksgiving Day games. We obviously have games on Saturdays after college football season. We have games every single Sunday, including three different broadcast windows. A fourth, if you add in the international games. We have Monday night football games, including sometimes double headers. We now have Christmas Day games. They have shown a willingness to go outside of those traditional broadcast windows to demand viewership when it makes sense. And I think Christmas Day makes a bunch of sense. And if I was the NBA, this is something that I would increasingly be concerned with because this has been your holiday. This has been something that you put your foot in the ground in and said, this is our day. We're going to hold nationally televised games and you're going to sit at home and you're going to watch them. The same thing that the NFL has done with Thanksgiving Day games. But if the NFL has shown us anything, it's there that the one league that you are not want to compete with. If the NFL comes in and steals Christmas Day, that is something that the NBA, Commissioner Adam Silver, and all of their counterparts are going to be extremely concerned with, especially as they go out and negotiate these big media contracts. So this is something that is a little bit TBD. We don't know exactly what the NFL is going to do here, but it's proven over the last year and this year coming up that they can command massive numbers compared to the NBA when they're on TV at the same time. And it's certainly something that not only should the NFL consider for their TV partners, but it's something that the NBA's TV partners should be concerned about in the long run. All right, before we get into the next topic, I want to remind you guys to join my community on Microsoft Teams. There's a few hundred people that have already joined, and it's going awesome. We're talking about different topics in sports business every single day, sharing articles, sharing tweets, and discussing the most important topics across the sports business landscape. So if you're interested in joining, if you like sports business, if you want to meet other like-minded people that like the same stuff as you, go to the link in the description of this podcast, or you can also go to the link at the bottom of the newsletter and you'll find how you can join. You just click on that link, you sign up and you join. You'll be placed in the group with hundreds of other people. This is something that we're going to be doing for the next year with Microsoft Teams already. So I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to be great. And I really hope you guys all take a second to join. All right, let's get into our next topic, which is about Aaron Rodgers. Now, I have a pretty strict rule on the show. I don't love talking about Aaron Rodgers. It's not because I don't like Aaron Rodgers. It's not that I don't like anything that he's doing necessarily. It's just that he's become this super divisive figure rather than a quarterback, right? If you look at his personality over the last few years, if you tweet about him, if you post about him, if you talk about him on a podcast, it hasn't been a lot of fun as someone who just enjoys creating content at the intersection of sports business, which is sort of a shame because he's an awesome quarterback and there's a lot of business behind not only his move to the New York Jets, but a bunch of other things that he's doing. But the reason why I want to talk about him today is because I think we've gotten to this point in time where it seems like people, specifically within sports media, but also fans, just can't separate their feelings about him, right? They have an inability to separate what they think about him as a person to him in the sports business sense or in a sports analysis perspective. And I'll give you an example, right? Over the last few days, something happened with Aaron Rodgers. Now, we all know that Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles tendon at the beginning of this year. And he made a big stink about it, saying that he was going to be trying to come back throughout the year. And this was a storyline. I've tweeted about it several times. He goes on the Pat McAfee show every single week and talks about it. Whenever he was throwing footballs or walking or standing on his toes at a Jets game on the sideline this year, videos were going viral online. Chances are, whether you wanted to or not, you were seeing content about Aaron Rodgers throughout the season. Now, there were a lot of people throughout the season, both medical professionals and not, who were saying that it was impossible for him to come back. An Achilles injury was season-ending, end of story, it wasn't worth discussing. And then you had people on the other end of the spectrum, which I would probably put myself in a little bit. I think I was probably towards the middle somewhat, but probably more towards the end of the other end of the spectrum, which was the idea that he was pushing the limits and trying his absolute best to do something that was thought to be medically impossible. 
And he documented all of this, right? I mean, he was showing us his rehab process. He was talking through it every single week on the Pat McAfee show. He was uh, talking about it to reporters on the sideline. He even at one point said his goal was to return by the middle of December. He told player on the Chargers after a game, jokingly, he later said, but he said, see you in a few weeks. So this was like egging on throughout the entire year. This wasn't something that was just going away. So I'll caveat all of that with like, I think some people were frustrated with the idea that we were still talking about this all year. When now he comes out and he says, I'm still a few weeks away. It's not likely, it's not a reality that I was ready to play. I'm not anywhere near 100%. And some people got upset about that. Whatever, that's neither here nor there. I take the camp of an optimist point of view. And I would say, I was looking forward to someone potentially defying the historical timeline that we have seen for Achilles. Achilles have typically been you know, one of the worst injuries in sports. I mean, the Achilles tendon is rough. It used to be a career ender back in the day. I mean, we're talking about 15, 20, 25 years ago. Now, surgeries have gotten a little bit better and the medical practice has gotten better about this to now where we're seeing surgeries come back and players come back within maybe six months, right? Which is tremendous. Aaron Rodgers was trying to beat that. We can argue till our faces are blue whether that was a reality or not. But what happened the other day was that he got put back on the Jets active roster. So the way this works is, A few weeks ago, the Jets activated him from injured reserve. And when you activate a player from injured reserve in the NFL, you then enter a period. It's a specific period, and it's a rule in the CBA where you have 21 days during that practice window to either activate the player or they have to go back on the IR. So what the Jets did was that window was running out. They ended up getting eliminated from playoff contention. And everyone said, okay, Aaron Rodgers is done. He even admitted that he's done. Why would you come back for a team and push it to potentially get injured again if they can't make the playoffs? So what ended up happening, though, everyone just expected the story to die down and go away. Instead, the Jets ended up activating him to the active roster, right? And what happens when you do that is there's not an open roster spot. You have to take someone off the active roster. So there was a fullback on the Jets whose name is Nick Bauden. Many of you probably have never heard of Nick. He's actually not a bad player. He's played in every single game. He's also scored a touchdown for the Jets this year, but he doesn't play a lot, not because he's not good, but because most teams don't really use a fullback anymore. But Nick got cut from the Jets when this happened, right? And what's going to happen is here, everyone was outraged on Twitter, whether they know Nick or not. They're saying Aaron Rodgers is taking money from this guy. He just got a player cut. He's not going to play. Why does he need to be on the active roster? And the reality is that most people are leaving out is that he needs to be on the active roster to practice. And again, I get it. Some people are going to say, why does he need to practice if he's not going to play? Well, the reality is that if he wants to continue to rehab and practice with the players, that's helpful. The Jets coach has also said that it'd be helpful for him to be around the other quarterbacks and around the other players to prepare for games. Look, the Jets are out of the playoffs and all signs point to the coach, the GM, and everyone else coming back next year because Aaron Rodgers wants them to come back. But my argument to all of that would be that you can't just throw away the season. Coaches don't want to lose games. They don't tank intentionally just because they're out of the playoffs for a better draft pick. No, every single week, players are out there fighting for their livelihood in their life. And if another player can make them play a little bit better, that's a good thing. And off of that, my argument to the whole idea that he shouldn't have been talked about the entire year is the fact that if the Jets were in playoff contention, if they were a good enough team, I mean, their defense is really good. They have one of the worst offensive lines in football. So you can't expect, you know, Zach Wilson or even Joe Flacco or Carson Wentz or any of these other quarterbacks, Joshua Dobbs, that people wanted them to go out there and get to have performed well. I mean, I'm a Giants fan. I've been through this for almost a decade now at this point. You cannot put a quarterback behind a line like that and expect them to perform well. It just wasn't going to happen. This team wasn't going to win a Super Bowl even with Aaron Rodgers this year. But I would argue that if they were able to make the playoffs, having Aaron Rodgers, the hope that he may be able to come back for a playoff run, 
would have been powerful to the team, would have motivated them, would have been good in the long run. Now, the fact that none of that happened and this team essentially imploded with a few weeks to go makes it look a little bit silly. I totally understand that and I get that. But I just think that people need to be able to remove themselves from him as the person and look at this from a strictly football perspective. Now, look, I don't think he's the savior that is going to come in, fly down and save the New York Jets and their fans from, you know, multiple decades of, of losing. At the end of the day, the Jets have given up a lot for him, right? They've signed some of his best friends to big contracts. They've traded away multiple picks. They paid him tens of millions of dollars in salary for what may end up being one, two, maybe three years of football. We'll see how he performs, right? To be determined on how that goes. But ultimately, there's just so much nuance to the conversation that I sit back as just a fan of sports business and someone that wants to talk about the different things going on in sports from more of an analytical perspective and not a screaming, hey, you suck type perspective. But as someone who just wants to analyze the different things going on, one of the things that I have noticed is that people have an inability to look at him as a player and they're mixing everything that he's doing off the field. And look, I get it. It's human nature. It happens. But I think when you analyze what's happening with the roster, what Aaron Rodgers provides to the team, and the fact that Nick Bauden is going to be signed back to the practice squad, and then he's going to be activated back to the active roster on game days, it's not like Aaron Rodgers is going to go dress out for games. There's no reason to have him on the 53-man roster for games. He's not going to be active for games. What they're going to do is sign Nick Bauden back to the practice squad, and then they're going to activate him for the games. He's not going to miss any game checks. He's not going to make any less money than he would have before. It's not something that everyone needs to scream and cry about because they feel enraged that Aaron Rodgers had another player cut. That's not what happened here. It's just a couple different rosters moves, and it's something that you're obviously going to want to have your starting quarterback and your Hall of Fame quarterback around the other quarterbacks on the roster to prepare for the game and let him continue to rehab. Again, I think it's much to do about nothing. People are overreacting a little bit. And when you just step back and you analyze the situation, it's not nearly as bad as everyone is saying. All right, let's take a quick break before we get to our last topic, NIL valuations and why they are all kind of inflated. All right, the last thing I want to talk about today are some of these NIL valuations, name, image, and likeness valuations that are posted by websites like On3 and other people like that. These valuations have been running rampant on the internet over the last couple of years, and they're only getting worse because now they're being used completely out of context. And I want to give you guys an example. So there was this tweet I saw on Twitter the other day on December 20th at 4.16 p.m. by Chris Law. The tweet reads, Arch Manning made over $3.2 million in NIL money this year as the Texas Longhorns backup quarterback. Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the number one seed San Francisco 49ers and the NFL's odds-on MVP favorite, made $870,000 for the 2023 season. Now, this tweet, I assume, is insinuating, like many other tweets that I've seen over the last few weeks, that college football players can make more money in NIL than several high, not, not high draft picks necessarily in Brock Purdy's case, but I did see that with Marvin Harrison Jr., but they can make more money than NFL players. Now, let's break down this tweet specifically, and then I'll get to some of the other use cases. Number one, Arch Manning and the Manning family has already said that he will not be accepting any NIL money, name, image, and likeness money, until he is playing regularly at the University of Texas. Until he's the starting quarterback, he's not going to be signing any NIL deals. So that $3.2 million number got me a little interested. I'm like, where did that come from? That seems interesting. Like, is that a fact? No, it turns out it's just the valuation that he has on on three. So the way these valuations work, no one's really sure because they don't tell you how the valuations work. I imagine what they're doing is they're adding up all their social media accounts, they're adding up their name recognition, the value that some of these other marketing companies put on those individuals, and they're coming up with a formula that determines how much money these athletes could potentially make in NIL money. Now, the dirty little secret here is that a lot of these athletes are not making anywhere close to this amount of money in NIL money. 
And the reason for this is quite simple. It's because maybe Arch Manning would be able to do something like that if he gets a national deal like Caleb Williams did or like other players like that did with companies like Wendy's or State Farm or other ones like that. You need a variety of those deals. But more importantly, what's happening is a lot of the agents, the NIL representatives for some of these athletes, they're putting numbers out there that are totally inaccurate in an attempt to recruit those players to better institutions that will give them more in NIL money. Now, again, many of you guys know this, but the dirty secret in this business now is that a lot of these numbers are pre-agreed to before the athlete even gets there. I mean, there was a, a recruit, an Ohio State recruit the other day that went to go sign his, his national letter of intent, but it never got sent to the school and it went several hours and everyone thought he was flipping. Well, it turns out he wasn't flipping schools. He was waiting for a signed contract from Ohio State's collective detailing exactly how much money he was going to make. I mean, this is pay for play at this point. Again, I don't hate it. It is what the rules are. I think instead they should be sharing, they should be doing revenue sharing with the players from the huge TV contract. But this is the world we live in. We don't need people misrepresenting a lot of these numbers online now, though. Arch Manning, again, is making no money in NIL money this year, and his $3.2 million valuation is exactly that. It's a valuation. Not to mention that Brock Purdy is making not only incentives, he's making more than his $870,000 salary in incentives, but he also has endorsements of himself. So the idea that you can earn more in college may technically be true for a subset of players, but no college players are going to be making more money in NIL this year than Brock Purdy. I mean, let's just be honest about this. Not only is he making millions of endorsements, but he's also earning himself more money into the future with his next quarterback contract. I mean, this guy is going to win MVP most likely. He's going to be the quarterback of the number one seed and a potential Super Bowl competing team. This guy is earning himself tens of millions of dollars into the future, whether it's with the 49ers or with someone else. Again, this is just something that we need to be concerned about long term. Be weary when you see these NIL numbers. Most of the time I've come to find them that they're just valuations from different websites like on three and other places like that. The valuations are mostly nonsense given different agents and people that I've talked to in and around the business. They don't make sense for most of the players. They're heavily inflated to get these players more money if they want to transfer schools or flip commitments or do other things like that. And it's become this big game of just like, how much can I fake it till I make it, right? How much can I say I'm worth till another school offers me that money or something close to it? And again, a lot of these players are finding out the hard way that even if you're guaranteed this amount of money, it doesn't always work that way, right? These contracts can't be based on your play but they can have, for example, a geographic location in the contract. So if you're not living in the area, okay, that contract is void. Now, the reality is that that's basically the exact same thing as you being at that school, right? If you don't live there, you obviously don't play for the school either. So if you transfer, that contract is now void. You don't get paid any of that money. There are a bunch of other tricks that players need to be wary about as well. Everything from percentage-based revenue sharing agreements for future contracts. We saw that with a couple of players in the NFL draft last year. We've seen a bunch of other contracts relative to autographs and other things like that too. So this is something, whether you're an athlete in high school or at the college level, whether you're the parent of an athlete at the high school or college level, whether you're an agent in the business or whatever, a lot of this stuff needs to get cleaned up. A lot of it is inaccurate. A lot of the numbers are inflated. And this is something that is going to continue to make noise. I mean, ESPN posted this tweet about Arch Manning making more money than Brock Purdy. ESPN, they have hundreds of millions of followers across all of their accounts, and it was totally fabricated and inaccurate. These valuations have made their way across a variety of sports media personalities. And again, it's something just when you see it, just know these numbers are a little bit inflated. They're like the, the earnings accounts at the end of the year for the players. They're directionally correct. You know, this player might be making more than this player, but the total dollar amount at an absolute perspective is usually inaccurate and it's something that you need to be wary of.
That's it for today, though, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, a couple housekeeping things. The newsletter next week, we will not be writing. I will see you guys back on the 1st of January. The podcast will be active, so make sure to check your feed. I'll be posting two different podcasts. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer specifically around sports business, it could really be anything around creating, around my life, whatever it is. Shoot me an email, DM me on Twitter, DM me on Instagram, wherever it is. I'll try to answer as many as I can next week on the podcast. Otherwise, I hope everyone has an awesome holiday. I hope you're able to spend some time with your family and friends, and I hope you're able to relax a little bit because we are going to get back after it early in January, and I hope you guys are going to be along for the ride. Have a great day, and we'll talk next week.